We worship a faithful God. Paul writing to Timothy reminds Timothy of the faithfulness of God. When he says that God's faithful even if we're faithless or when we're faithless. Because he cannot deny himself. He's faithful because of who he is. Aren't you glad we serve a God who is faithful? Who is consistent. Who we can depend upon. Good morning. Go ahead and take your copy of the scriptures and open them to Acts and the sixth chapter, we, in our study of Acts, we're looking, we looked, first of all, of course, at the launch of the church, how the Lord Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, launched the church. And we looked at the mission of the church. We've seen a lot that has taken place in this early church with lessons that are applicable for us. And this morning, we're going to talk about difficulties or challenges. When we talk about the church growing, the church grows often through persecution, but the church also grows through internal struggles. I want you to remember the setting of what we're talking about. They had a rapidly growing church. In Acts chapter 2, we have 3,000 saved. In Acts chapter 5, we had 5,000 saved. And this is Andros. These are men, not including in the count, the women and the children. So certainly 10,000 or 10,000 plus people as a part of this church. And what was their leadership structure? Can anybody tell me what the leadership structure of the early church was by the time we get to Acts chapter 6? Twelve apostles. The only leadership structure that we have identified right now is twelve apostles. The eleven plus, of course, um, the the one that was selected in Acts chapter 1 to take Judas' place, Matthias. And so uh, there's a lot going on in the life of their church. And they had obvious signs of organization. We know that they were structured. Over 10,000 converts, offerings were being taken regularly. We Heard the story of Barnabas himself and how Barnabas had sold his field and and brought the offerings in. Others were selling their goods and their possessions so that the needs of the saints could be met. The widows and the poor were being fed. We'll look at that right now in just a little bit. They were having regular meetings, not only in Solomon's portico, where they would gather together consistently to be taught and to be fed, but they were meeting together house to house for the breaking of, in that breaking of bread and prayer. And fellowship. They had all the signs and all the indications of a mighty moving of God in the growth of this church, of a mighty moving of God in the maturing of this congregation, in the ministries of this congregation, all signs of an organized body of Christ. Now, what we know that they did not at this time was they were on the precipice of advancing the Great Commission. Right now, they're in Jerusalem. You have the people who were from Jerusalem, the Israelite or Israeli-type Christians, the Hebrew-speaking Christians who were very devoted to the temple. You had also Jews that had been scattered in the diaspora, and they were from as far away as Alexandria in northern Africa. They were as far close to Egypt. They were as far away as, as Eastern Asia, Bithynia, and other areas there. They were from the West as well, Jews that had been acclimated to what was taking place in Greece and in Rome. And they had come back for Pentecost. They had met Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. And many of them had stayed. This was where this was. This is where the church was, their new home and their new family. And of course, uh, it's just an exciting time. But this church is based in Jerusalem. It is geographically constrained, but only for a little while. It won't be very long in our study till we come across a renewed persecution. And God used the external persecution to move believers around the world. They go to Samaria. They go to Antioch. They go throughout Judea. And ultimately, of course, the gospel is spread throughout the uttermost parts of the earth. To quote Acts chapter 1 verse 8. 
through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so they're on the verge of this explosion, the spreading of the gospel that is generated through primarily. One of the motivations is generated through is the persecution of the church. They didn't know that yet. They're having church, and they're having church at home. And one of the things that we see is, of course, there are needs. Now, we want churches to grow, and this series is about church growth. This is about numerical growth. We need to be reaching people with the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, presenting the gospel to, the, to, to people so that the Holy Spirit can convict and draw and, and regenerate. God can regenerate souls. A very important task, and we trust God in that. We talked last week about the, or week before last, about the providence of God in salvation, and He's trustworthy totally and completely. But there's a whole other aspect of growth that is part and parcel of this. When Jesus gave the disciples the command to, gave us the command to make disciples. Part of that is evangelism, is the proclamation of the gospel, baptizing them, identification with the body, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then what? teaching them to observe whatsoever things I've commanded you. And so there's this maturing, this increase in knowledge, this learning Christ, if you will. That's what Paul calls it in several places in Scripture where he says that, that be careful, guard yourselves against sin, of course, so you, this is not how you have learned Christ. And so that is what's taking place here. They are being fed the Word of God consistently. They had challenges to overcome. This church grew through the process of challenges. There were external persecutions. You guys will remember how that Peter and John were called before the Sanhedrin, how they were locked up, how they were beaten and released. And we will see this happen again and again as we go through what's taking place in the church in these days. And they had persecution from religious leaders and there were external problems. And these external problems, though, they tend to... What is, it, what is the consequence of an external problem in the life of a church typically. It brings the church together because there's a common challenge. And so there's an issue here. Let's come together and let's face the issue. And we see again and again, God will use external persecution, external challenges to strengthen the life of the church, to strengthen, strengthen their faith. What happens when we are externally set upon is it makes us less dependent upon our own strength our own abilities our own competencies it draws us and 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 requires that we go to god in prayer and in dependence and in faith and in trust and external persecution often results in the spread of the gospel and it results in the maturing and the unity of the church but there's a whole nother type of conflict that churches every church faces and it's those internal conflicts, whether it be individual sin, you guys remember Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. How that they lied to the Holy Spirit, lied to the congregation, and God exercised immediate church discipline. <laughs> it was a very severe response because God's protecting the purity of the church. And again, there was a lot of things that were taking place at that point in time. But they had that issue, and that issue was immediately dealt with. But now we come to Acts chapter 6 and we've got another issue. And it is an internal issue in the life of the church. Scott read our text. In these days, we've already given the setting for this. When the disciples, Mathetes, these are the learners. These are those who are learning Christ, who are being fed at the feet of the apostles. Those who have surrendered their lives and been baptized. And they were increasing in number, added in obviously. But there was, arose a complaint uh, the King James says murmuring. It's the same word that's used for murmuring and grumbling. And this came from a minority group in the church, from the Hellenist. 
And it was against the majority group in the church, the Hebrews, those Jews who spoke Hebrew Aramaic, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. I really want to kind of focus our attention here first. And again, this sermon has three points. When we talk about growth, one of the areas that we need to grow in is we need to grow in faith. Internal problems are a different thing than external persecution. And when the church is not in unity, when there are problems that are swept under the rug instead of being addressed, when the church becomes fractured and divided by factions that are in conflict and competition with one another, the church can, and most often does, until it's addressed, lose sight of its mission, of its reason for existing. We see that all throughout 1 Corinthians. You guys remember Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, his first letter? The first thing they said was, all right, you got some who are saying they follow this leader or someone who's a disciple of this leader, someone who's a disciple of that leader, someone who's a disciple of another, and the, the more mystical ones are saying, I, no, I, I just follow Christ. You, they, there are other things that are taking place in the church, blatant, known public sins that the church did not address. They were even suing one another. There were several things. They were abusing the Lord's service. All of these things were taking place, and the church had lost its way as far as its mission because of the internal conflicts. And there is potential for that happening in every church. As a matter of fact, I will go so far to say as I don't know any church made up of human beings who do not find themselves in conflict or in disagreement or facing trials or challenges at some point or the other. Because we are people with differing viewpoints, various agendas, different backgrounds, conflicting uh, passions, when dissensions or murmuring occurs, it must be addressed. And we see that's what's happening here. Now the Hellenists, were the minority group. These were the Jews that had been scattered decades before in the diaspora when the Jews had been persecuted and, again, they had spread throughout the earth. And when you think, and our tendency is to think, you know, in groups. We think, oh, all Baptists are pretty much the same. Uh, all Americans are pretty much the same. Uh, you know, all, pick a country, are, are pretty much the same. But when you look closer, you find there's a lot of differences. And among the Jewish nation, you had the Israelis. You had those who were connected to the Hebrew and Aramaic language. You had those who were culturally still following the lineage of Abraham, uh, Moses, and, and very identified there. But in the diaspora, the Jews had spread to other countries and other cities, and Greek was the language of the day. Greek was the language of business and commerce. Greek was the language of culture. And the Jews were known for their business acumen. And they were known for their accomplishments in in a variety of different ways. Everything from literature to um, other aspects of society that were beneficial for the communities that they were located in. And so they spoke Greek and they had become enculturated, if you will. Hellenized is the word. They identified more with the Greek culture, even though they were faithful to the synagogue, even though they continued to study the Word of God. They were culturally different. We had two distinct groups that were taking place. And so uh, it's important that we understand the difference between those two. They were complaining against the, 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 the Israelites, the Hebrew Jews, because their widows were not being... Um, Fed. They were not being addressed in the, in the distribution, the daily distribution of food. We need to start out when we talk about church. 
when we have different people, different passions, different cultures, different backgrounds, we need to start out with the understanding that we are going to face trials. That there are going to be challenges. That there are going to be tests. And this is not anything that ought to depress us or discourage us or frustrate us. As a matter of fact, when we studied James not too long ago, how are we supposed to address trials when they come? My brethren, James chapter 1, my brethren, count it all, say that louder, my brethren, count it all joy when you face trials of varying kind, different trials. Why? Because those trials have a purpose. Those trials accomplish a purpose in our life. They are an opportunity for us to grow in our faith. Just to read James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith. What's being tested? Your faith. Your faith in God. The faithfulness of God. Do you trust that God is indeed faithful like we just sang? Do you trust that God provides? Do you trust in God's care for you? Do you you trust what God has promised and what He said? The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We need to recognize that challenges, trials, and tests are going to come, and they're going to come internally. And there's going to be, in some cases, interpersonal conflict. There's going to be, in other cases, legitimate challenges in faith, uh, that we face as a congregation in areas of ministry. And those are opportunities for growth. And I don't know if you're taking notes. We've got three little things for you. To kind of structure this about. But the first thing is that we need to make sure that we grow in faith. That every child, trial and every challenge and every test is an opportunity for us to grow in our faith. Now, in those days, when the disciples were increasing number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. What are the circumstances that set the stage, if you will? For this particular challenge. Distinct cultures. Thrown together. In a new relationship in the body of Christ. Plus you have the inherent challenges. Of a diverse congregation. Economically diverse congregation. There are those who were in need. And I'm talking about legitimate physical need. Those who if they were not fed. Would not eat. Legitimate. Needs. To be met. Then you had others who had resources. As a matter of fact, many of them were liquidating their real resources. They were selling property, they were selling other things, and they were bringing those things. This is the whole thing that got Ananias and Sapphira in this mess in the first place. And we have Barnabas as an excellent example of how it is to be done. And many were doing this. So there was this whole administration where offerings were being provided, food was being purchased, and it was being distributed broadly among those, particularly the widows. And by the way, this is not a new thing for the Jews. You do recognize that we've read the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, how many of you just finished Ruth just last week? You guys remember Ruth? Wasn't it great? Don't you love Ruth, Naomi, and her relationship with Ruth, and Boaz? And I'm not saying that you should provide for the poor in order to find the spouse. But, you know, it... it, 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 it worked for Boaz. Let's just put it like that. Okay. Now, what, what happened? The, the Jewish culture was always to provide for the needs. It was commanded. It was demonstrated. 
particularly for widows and for orphans. We see the exhortation in the Psalms. And that command did not go away in the New Testament. When Jesus fulfilled the commandment, that's a commandment that continues on, that character of Christ. As a matter of fact, back in James chapter 1, if you go down all the way to the very end of that chapter, James 1, 27, the last verse in 1, says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So there, again, there's this care. And they're doing, they're doing what they can. Are they doing it perfectly? Uh, obviously not. The murmuring came, and when it was identified, it, it was not discounted in this text. It wasn't like, oh, they're just complaining. Oh, they're just making... They're, they're just never happy. You know, they're kind of the outsiders of the new people in the area. They, they're not... You know, they ought to be just happy with what they get. No, there was a legitimate need, and it was identified as so. But this set the stage for conflict. There were some showing favoritism to the Hebrew-speaking Jewish widows, and some putting to the back of the line these Greek-speaking Jewish widows, and this caused the problems. And there's a complaint, and we've been through a lot of things in the church, but now within the church we've got conflict, rivalries, factions, and teams that are forming. And the claim was not disputed, not in this text. The problem was a legitimate problem. There were people who were going without food, or people who were, were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Now let me address one thing that we need to apply at this point in our personal lives and in the life of the church. There are times when we're going to face trials of deprivation when we do not have something that we want to have, or we do not have something that we need to have. It may be an economic deprivation. It may have something to do with your calendar, things that you would like to do or things that you feel you need to do but you cannot do. It may have to do with your health, a diagnosis you would like but you do not have and you are deprived of health or aspects of health. It may have to do with relationships. Uh, There's something that all of us are, at some point or another, are going to have to do without. How do we respond? The Hellenists murmured, but it was not, in this text at any rate, indicated that they were just whining and just complaining. They were pointing out a problem that it filters up, at least, and gets to be addressed. You and I have the opportunity to face these trials of deprivation when we do without by growing in our faith by firming up what God is accomplishing in our life through saying no in that circumstance. We need to have a, I don't know, a robust theology. We need to know that God is faithful. And when I look around and it doesn't look like God is faithful because I have a need and this need is not being met, that God is still faithful. That there are so many things that I cannot grasp and that I cannot understand. And I have the perspective and I need to make sure that I recognize His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. His thoughts are as far above mine as the heavens are above the earth. And this is the God who created all things and who works providentially. And nothing is outside of His control. And when the answer to me is no, there's a reason for it. And the reason for it, as long as I'm being obedient to Him, is always for my good. To develop me into steadfast endurance. To make me mature. Teleos. To teach me the lesson that I am to learn. To increase my dependence upon Him. To give Him the opportunity to provide in ways that bring Him glory and Him honor. To keep me dependent upon His strength in my weakness 
for His glory. Does that make sense? And so when we face trials of deprivation, we trust God. We trust God and grow in our faith. We trust God because God is trustworthy. We trust God because He is bringing about His refining work in our life. We trust God because of His promise and the reality that we experience that He walks with us through the valley of life, even through the valley of the shadow of death. Amen? We grow in faith. We grow in faith. Well, here's a trial. A trial and test is an opportunity to grow into faith. How did they handle the problem? They summoned the twelve, the disciples, summoned the full member of the disciples. They called a congregational meeting, family meeting, Solomon's portico, Sunday morning, 7 o'clock. No, I'm kidding. It wasn't exactly like that. But it was similar. Let's get everybody together and let's tell them a few things. What did they tell them? They said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. I want to start right there. The first thing that these apostles understood was they had a specific and distinct role in the body of the church. And they placed the priority where God had placed the priority in his call to them, the very word apostle, the sent one, sent to proclaim, sent to convey the message. And they kept as a priority and centrality the study, the prayer, and the preaching of the word of God. Churches grow. Believers grow. When we hold the word of God as central to our life. As a priority in our life. As a significant way. The way that God has revealed truth to us and continues to reveal truth to us. They kept the right Priorities. Their task and their role was to feed the flock of God. They prayed, inviting the power of God in their life, making sure they were in alignment with the will of God. They studied the Scriptures and searched the Scriptures, and they prepared and delivered lessons and instruction. They were teaching people Jesus. The people were learning Jesus. And as important as making sure that everybody got fed was, the disciples said, in our role, this is preeminent. In our congregation, as people of God... This is the preeminent task, the preeminent role, the preeminent responsibility. When our priorities get out of order, the work of Christ in the world is disrupted. When we neglect the Word of God, when we neglect the teaching of God, when we neglect the reading of God, when we neglect the obedience to the revealed truth of God in His Word, we have a problem. And you see it again and again, denominations and denominations all around our, our country and all around our world, uh, but certainly all around our country, even in our city. There are churches who have neglected the authority of Scripture. There are congregations, whole denominations, who have neglected the, the, the priority of believing, reading, studying, and knowing the Word of God. And I will tell you, it rings the death knell. The death knell. Blah, blah, blah. Let me get that right. It rings the death knell for the life of the church. What happens? The lampstand from the church is removed. The, presence in the power the visible witness the moving of god in the life of church is taken away and all of a sudden it's no longer a spiritual organism where the members are indwelled by the spirit of god in christ as head of his church it's just a group of people who want to do good in the world and there's a difference there's a difference years ago in one of the rooms over at the old building we had a group of leaders of the church and we were going to an exercise it was a room full of people actually 
And we're going to an exercise to say, Pendleton Street Baptist Church, what are our values? What are the things that we say, these are non-negotiable? And there are some things that we can measure and say, well, obviously this is a value for us because this is where we spend our money. This is where we spend our time. This is where, you know, this, this is what goes on the calendar. And so these things are uh, expressed values. And then there were some that were just simply aspirational values. These are the things that we know we should value, that we profess that we should value, but they're less demonstrated, and those are aspirational. Those are values that we're declaring this is a value, and so we're going to start shifting things in order to make sure these are the priority in our life. Well, we came up with a list of eight, okay, which is a long list when you talk about things that you value. And I'm going to be a little transparent here. I remember two. Actually, I remember more than two, but I only remember the order of two because we had a lot of discussion. What are the things that we as believers should value? And I will tell you that the, the question, the discussion, and it was not a debate. Nobody was angry. People didn't shout and spit and criticize each other. It was, it was legitimate, good talk. Some of you were in that room. I don't know if you remember these discussions or not. But the two values that we discussed as the top two, the first was truth. We value truth. The Word of God. Truth is revealed in the living Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Truth is revealed in the written and preserved Word of God, the Holy Scriptures. And the second was we value people. We value people. God loves people and so do we. We love God, therefore we love the people that He has created. And the question was, where, where does that fall on the spectrum? Which one comes first? Do you love people most? Do you love truth most? And what became abundantly clear to us as we prayed and as we talked and as we looked at, in, in Scripture was that you can't love people right if you don't love truth more. When you place people over truth, all of a sudden, you are doing things to please people, to satisfy people, to avoid conflict, to enable, and you're giving approval to things that Scripture cannot give approval to that, are, that will lead to the, construct, uh, to the destruction of their lives, will lead to increased problems, will lead even to a lack of knowledge of God or separation from God, because people become the priority. Are people important? Absolutely. God loves people and so do we. But how do we know how to love people? Because God tells us how in truth. In His Word and demonstrated in the life of Christ as we yield to the Lord Jesus Christ who lives within us. And so you need to be abundantly clear and I hope that you all know this. Our number one stated value of this church and I hope demonstrated in our life and how we conduct things is we value truth as revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as preserved in the written and living inspired Word of God. And because of that, we can't help but value people. We can't help but desire the best for people to see them reach their full potential as believers in Christ. Bringing them from darkness to light, from being lost to being saved through the proclamation of the Word of God and as God works in their life. And then teaching them that they may learn Jesus and be teleos, be perfect, mature, and complete. Does that make sense? And so we have those values, those priorities that are important. They kept their priorities important we, 12, we are to pray and we're to minister the word. I love that word, minister the word. It's diakonos. We're to serve the word of God. And so, if they're not, someone must, right? If they're not going to administer this ministry, someone must. So I love what they do. Matter of fact, there are some astounding phrases 
for, for us in this passage. I, to me, just astounding. It's like for, a point from among yourselves. And this is important. When we start looking for leaders in the church, the first place that we look is in the church. Now, granted, God's church universal, and there are believers in other places, and sometimes God will move people in that have gifts and abilities, and all of that component, I'm not discounting that, but I will tell you that we have here in the South, in Southern Baptist congregations, we have a propensity to say, if there's a need, let's go call somebody and have them come meet the need, rather than let the need be addressed by those who are the stakeholders or the most invested in that ministry in the church. But they said, from among yourselves, I want you to choose seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we, the twelve, will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So they broadened the base of leadership in the church. They recognized positional leaders. And it's important that we grasp and understand something. Every member of the body has a role to play in the life of the church. Service in the life of a church, serving one another, loving one another, ministering to one another in the context of relationships with believers is a non-negotiable. Go to Romans chapter 12. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. As a matter of fact, in your application questions, I give you a whole section of verses where Paul is teaching the church at Corinth about what it means to be a body of Christ and the body has many members and let no one think higher of himself than he ought to think. Uh, There are different members that have different roles and different functions and we ought to pursue those things. Uh, We need to recognize that everyone is gifted. That everyone has some spiritual gift that God has given to you. That everyone has competencies and abilities and shape for ministry. And so everyone has a role to play in service. And so that's the second growth that we see in this context. Not only were they growing in their faith, they were growing in their service. They increased recognized positional leadership. But again, these seven men, these weren't the only ones doing the work of the ministry. They were feeding hundreds at a minimum of widows and orphans. There were people that had a role to play, important to grasp and understand. And it's also important to understand that the spiritual character of these people who were called to leadership trumped their competencies. It was more important that they be of good repute, that they be full of the Spirit, and that they be filled with wisdom than they had demonstrated in some sort of other capacity the, the ability to, demonst- to, to uh, administrate. Why? why? Why is that more important? Why should you not simply turn to an accountant or a banker to handle the church finances or an HR person to coordinate volunteers or a CEO to provide administrative duties in the life of the church? And the first thing I would say is those things aren't ruled out. Hallelujah, those things aren't ruled out. Many of you have been shaped for an expression in ministry in the life of the church through how God has arranged your life through secular employment and secular experiences, whether it be in accounting or management or administration or multiple functions or aspects of of ministry. Those aren't ruled out. Many are shaped by experience and training to be able to do these tasks more effectively in the church. But the priority is that the most important qualifications deal with a person's character, their spiritual life, their relationship with God, their respect among the congregation. And the public affirmation of their character. They are to be of good repute. They are to be a track record of some. They are to be filled with the Spirit. The kind of people who are pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ. That will not only 
carry out this task of making sure the widows are fed, but we'll sit down with you and open the scriptures with you, that we'll pray with you, that we'll walk through life with you. And they're to be wise. They're to be exhibiting wisdom in how they live. And probably the most astounding thing in this passage, and this, this keeps coming up in the commentaries, it's amazing that all of these names are Greek. None of the apostles were Hellenistic Jews. None of the twelve. They were all Hebrew-speaking Jews. They were in Jerusalem. There were more Hebrew-speaking Jews. And yet, those who were stakeholders, those who had widows who were being neglected, when the congregation saw this, when they told them to choose seven, all of the names of those are Greek names. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. We'll learn more about him shortly. And Philip, we'll learn more about him shortly too. And Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas and Nicholas, uh, a proselyte of Antioch. And if you're case, in case you're wondering whose pronunciation of those names are right, Scots or mine, because we didn't pronounce them all the same way, you get to choose. They're not here to correct this. All right. And so, but here's what you need to grasp about those names. Those are Greek names. They turned the leadership of this ministry over to the people who were impacted by the ministry. Those who are stakeholders in the ministry. And there's a principle that I think is important for us. Those who are engaged in the ministry. Those who are stakeholders in the ministry. Those who this ministry affects. And those who have a heart and a passion for this calling. Are the ones who need to be the ones who are leading the ministry. And they focused on the problem. Not on personalities. To me the greatest wonder is not that they had Greek names. Seven Greek names. By the way, only six of those were Jews. One of those was a proselyte. He was a Gentile who had become proselytized first to the Jews and then to Christ. Okay? Now, that's important to note. But to me, the greatest wonder is not that. To me, the greatest number is wonder is this phrase, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. How many times have you had an issue that come up and everybody in the church said, yeah, that's exactly what we think ought to be done. That's the right thing to do. But I will tell you that there was such love and one heart, one passion, what such commitment to the mission and the purpose of the church that when a conflict arose, it was identified. Priorities were established and held on to. The conflict was not swept under the rug and they didn't start calling names and pointing fingers at one another. They said, what is the best thing for us to do? We're going to pray and we're going to study. You guys choose seven people. These guys need to be trustworthy people who demonstrate with a track record, good repute among the people, filled with the Holy Spirit of God and wise. And then you trust these guys as they administer this. And that goes all the way throughout the whole congregation. And Jew Hebrew and Jew Hellenistic who have become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the whole congregation agreed that, that this was the approach to use. Isn't that great? Don't you love it? Again, you go back to the Psalms. Brothers, isn't it good when believers, when brothers dwell together in unity? Now, there's an important component to this, I believe, and I'm just going to mention this quickly and we'll move on. But that is, when the church has a mission and is aware of its mission, when the church has a purpose and a priority and it's aware of its purpose and its priority, it is easier for the church to work together in unity Addressing problems as they arise, solving those problems, and moving forward in a way that God is glorified. But when a church allows the problems to supplant the priority 
of ministry, the purpose that which God has given to us, when we begin to prioritize people and their needs and their complaints over the eternal truths of God and the expression of that in our life, then the church begins to fight among itself. And it results in disunity, it results in splits, it results in an ineffective gospel presentation and a poor witness to the world. Very simple. Very, very simple. Herb Hodges is a pastor in Tennessee, and years ago, I was sitting in a conference, and he was preaching. And he said, you guys need to recognize that the church is like a pack of wolves. When we're on the hunt, when we are hungry, when we have a goal and a purpose, we run shoulder to shoulder. And we work as a team. And it's a very effective method to satisfy the hunger, to pursue the hunt. But let a pack of wolves be fed and be sated and be sitting around among themselves. And what do they do? They start to snap and growl and bite and fight among themselves. And so for any church to be effective, we need to make sure we never lose sight of the mission God has for us. And the word of God, verse 7, continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many priests even became, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And that's the thing that we need to make sure that we pursue as a church. That we grow in our influence. That's the third point on the outline. To grow in influence. This church did. The world needs to see what difference Christ makes in our life. It is not one thing to profess Christ and to live, continue as you used to live. Now the world needs to see what a difference Christ makes as we deal with each other. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. Jesus told his disciples. What? If you have, or when you have, when you demonstrate, love one for another. The church needs to know that, uh, the world needs to know that the church yielded to Christ, obedient to the teaching of the Word of God, responds to problems with grace and clarity and persistence. The world needs to know that Christ is exalted in our life and that we have a mission that is to glorify God by making mature disciples of all nations, which means doesn't mean we're not going to make some mistakes, guys. We're going to have some ineffective ministry. We're going to miss some things. There's going to be opportunities that we miss. We're going to have some challenges, legitimate needs that may not be met. And yet we grow in our faith as we face these trials together. As we step up in obedience, we grow in our service. By the way, not only do we grow in the number of people that serve, you grow spiritually as you serve. You understand you're designed to serve. And as you step out in obedience to do things that may be even uncomfortable, the Holy Spirit will grow you and perfect you and make you teleos. And then we grow more effectively and efficient in our ministry, dependent upon the Holy Spirit, and we grow in our witness. And that becomes a testimony to the world. Our ministry, our mission is to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to make disciples, to see lives changed and transformed. But additionally, our mission is to invest the Word of God into the hearts and the lives of people 
as the priority because it is through the Word of God that feed, that He feeds us, that He challenges us, that He corrects us, that He moves and work in us and through us to shape us into the image of Christ as a testimony to the world. And this is all possible because of grace. Not a whole lot of new information in this example for those of us who have been a part of a church for any length of time. But these are truths that we need to grasp. As a church, we're to grow. Amen? And every challenge is an opportunity for growth. Every test is a way that God works in us, not only to prove to us ourselves where we are, but to show us where we need to be. And as we demonstrate this, we grow in service to God, in service to one another, and we grow in our missional impact because that's the work that Christ came to accomplish. Christ came to seek and to save the lost. This morning's the first Sunday of the month, first Sunday of the second month, of the even month. We come together this morning to celebrate what Christ has accomplished in obedience to Him by the command that He established. We get to celebrate the Lord's Supper together to be reminded that His purpose in coming to the cross and shedding His blood is, is, is continuing. His purpose to, uh, of rescuing people, that work that He began is continuing through the obedience of his people. Now, I will tell you that you can't see Acts as a formula when we talk about church growth. You can't say, if I just stand up and do this, 3,000 people are going to respond to the invitation. You have to trust in the providence of God. What we learn from the book of Acts is the faithfulness of his people in obedience to proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. To proclaim it faithfully, that there is no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved. For us to rest in it ourselves and for us to make it known. So this morning as a church we come together to worship and to thank God through the observance of the Lord's Supper. Now let me explain just a couple of things. We practice close communion, not closed, but close, which means that if you're here in this room and you are a believer, if you've been saved, if you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, if you can say with confidence my sins are forgiven. The Holy Spirit indwells me. I am a disciple. I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have been made new in Him. And I'm, if you are here and that is your testimony, this is for you. And we invite you to participate in this. As, as those who believe. Now, if you're here and you're questioning or you're not sure, if you're here and you're searching and you're curious, praise the Lord. We're glad that you're here. But this is not for you. This is a celebration for those who have surrendered their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's indicative of two things. Number one, it indicates the body of the Lord Jesus Christ broken for us. Substitutionary atonement, a human paying the penalty for sin as a means of appeasing and satisfying the righteous requirement of a holy and a just God. And not only his body broken, but his blood shed all the way from Genesis, Exodus particularly, and all the way through, we have the shedding of blood as a means that sin is washed and cleansed and forgiven. And we have all that Old Testament practice that points to the perfect Lamb of God whose blood takes away the sin of the world. And so having been substituted by Christ on the cross where he took our place, he has given his life to us. Having been washed by the blood of the Lamb, 
we are proclaiming his death for sin, the life that he gives to us when we come to him in repentance and faith. And we're going to proclaim this all the way until the Lord comes back. Even so, Lord Jesus, comes soon. Amen. So this is for believers. Now, we're going to do this this morning by using these little kits. And I look at your faces, and some of you are saying, Oh no, I hate those things. And I have to tell you, I don't know if you remember the last time we did this, and I don't mean to make light of this, but last time we did this, everyone was ready but me. I couldn't get the plastic off the top. So I cheated a little bit. I went ahead and tore the plastic on this one. But let me walk you through this, because I don't, I, again, I just want to, 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 to make sure that we understand the symbolic, the symbolism of this. I'm going to invite you to come up and pick up one of these, and what you'll find on the top is a wafer. It's just a, a, a very small taste of unleavened bread. And that is in obedience to the way that they participated in the Passover. Not a little round wafer, but a, a unleavened bread. And so this is how we're going to do it for convenience and, and, of course, just for the protocols that we had been under and that we are continuing to honor today. And so that will be the first thing that we th- do. There's a second layer of plastic. You will lift that up, and then that's where the juice is. The juice is representative of the blood of Christ. And then it's trash when you're done. Just sit it on the floor. We'll make sure that it's picked up afterwards. But as these are the elements, by the way, there's nothing sacrosanct. There's nothing sacred in these elements. They are symbolic of the body and blood of Christ. And so as we participate in this this morning, I'm going to ask that you simply stand up and that you come around, come from left across to right and pick one up and if you want to send someone representing your family if you want to pick some up for the people on your row again this is not any sort of personal administration this is just getting this in your hands and then we will come back together in a few moments and we will go step by step through this celebration of the lord's supper but as we do let's let's pray father i want to thank you for the lord jesus christ for the work that he accomplished in his body. His righteous living. Tempted in every manner just as we are yet without sin. Qualified for him to be. The son of man. Perfect. Who went to pay the penalty. For all of us. Who All of us. All of creation who needs to be saved. Father I'm grateful for. His body that was broken. I'm grateful for his blood that was shed. And I pray that as we gather together as a body, as a church this morning, that you will help us to view any trials that we've been facing as an opportunity to grow in our faith and that our faith will not be shaken. It will be strengthened. That you'll help us to step up in obedience when we see a need, that it may be you calling us to administer and meet that need. Father, also that we will grow in our influence, our personal testimonies, the personal display of Christ in our life, the corporate influence of this congregation as we walk in obedience to you. All because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Be glorified in us today. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, let's stand together. If you'll come and get one. Appropriate. To turn our eyes upon the Lord Jesus as we celebrate this together. On the same night in which Jesus was betrayed, he gathered in the upper room with his disciples. This is the upper room discourse shortly before his death. 
Jesus took bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it, and he told his disciples, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In John chapter 6, we have Jesus preaching a sermon to the crowds. There are a lot of things that are taking place in the Gospel of John, particularly in chapter 6. But when Jesus was teaching and addressing the Pharisees, he said specifically, I am the bread which came down from heaven, not like manna, not as the fathers ate and died, but he that eateth this bread shall live forever. His body broken for us. In the same manner, back in the upper room, Jesus took the cup. And when he had supped, he said, This cup is the new covenant, the New Testament, in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you drink this, eat this bread and drink this cup, you show forth the Lord's death until he comes. The symbol of the blood that is shed is throughout Scripture according to the law and reflected in Hebrews. All things were cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. And then again, John, the apostle of John, writes, If we walk in the light as He is the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us. From all sin. We're only cleansed for sin through the blood of Christ that was shed. And so that's what we celebrate. For those of us who have been washed in the blood, for those of us who have had our sins forgiven, for those of us who know God, we give praise and glory to God Almighty. If you're here and this has not been your experience, we would love to explain this to you and to talk to you about how you can know forgiveness of sins and know the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't God good? He is good indeed. We're going to go ahead and close this service. And so we'll close it with a word of prayer. And with our song, I would invite you to stand with me as we close. Now, today is the first Sunday of the month. And so you can go ahead and be standing. As a matter of fact, I want to give you plenty of time to reach in your pockets. Today is Alms Sunday. And so we want to give you an opportunity to give. What we do on these Sundays is we collect an offering that is specifically to meet the most serious needs of people in our neighborhood, in our community, whether it be uh, addressing some bills or food or, or, or core needs that people have, which is an appropriate Sunday for this since we're talking about that type of ministry in the early church. And so here's an opportunity for you to financially participate in that ministry as you lead. Father, I want to thank you that you are strong, that you are great, that you are mighty, that you use every trial and every challenge as an opportunity to increase our faith, to give us avenues of service, and to make your name known among our community and among the nations. We give glory to you. In your name I pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.